If uh, you are visiting for the first time, we have been looking at the book of Mark. And the reason that we have been looking at the book of Mark for the past year is we've been studying his life and his work, uh, who he is and, and what he has come to accomplish. Now, we're coming to the very end of the book, and we're moving more toward his work. But up to this point, as we look at Christ, we've seen his humanity, we've seen his deity. We've certainly seen in his humanity uh, that he has had many trials and tribulations. Matter of fact, three years he's in the public ministry knowing that he has to die. But through it all, we see him in control. Even, even with the betrayal of, of Judas and, and there at the Lord's table. But many commentators say that this is the most sacred text in all of Scripture because we see him come unhinged. Uh, absolutely uh, beside himself. And so this is holy ground that we walk upon today because God in his mercy lets us look in uh, to what is going on 2,000 years ago on a cool night uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is God's Word. Let's, let's read God's Word together. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, I must die with you. I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little far, farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And he came and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time. And he said, are you still sleeping? Taking your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you above all for our Lord Jesus. We see him indeed in our text coming undone on our behalf. And so, Lord, would you help us to understand your word? 
and to understand the gospel, that we would be moved by what Christ did 2,000 years ago in that garden on our behalf as he's entering into the process of being cut off for us so that we might enter in. So, Lord, would you work? And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, maybe I have uh, said this before, but I always felt odd when my father would introduce me as his son, the minister. Now, a lot of y'all know that I have a lot of brothers, a number of brothers, and never did I hear my father say, well, this is my son, Rick, the contractor, or this is my son, David, the insurance broker, or this is my son, Bob, the musician. Now, I'm sure maybe the reason he did that was because he was proud. I don't know. Maybe I'm a minister because I was a minister. But the reason that it bothered me is because it immediately put a barrier between me and the people I was being introduced to. Oh, this is the son, the minister. And some other brothers, Bob, Rick, Steve, David, Jimmy, they were, you know, people could get to know them just for who they were. But I think the real reason that it would, uh, would frustrate me is, was not because I was a minister. I'm not ashamed of being a minister. I'm thankful that God has called me to be a minister of the gospel, as unqualified as I think I am. So it's not that. But it's because I know that the majority of people who are not Christians assume that I'm a really devout guy. Uh, that my whole life is, it must be about living up to some reputation, being a minister, about being good, Versus the reality, and that is to be free. You see, non-Christians, if you're not a Christian today, you see religion as a means of self-reform, self-reformation. To work on the outside, hoping nobody discovers what's on the inside, right? And so when they see a minister or... or Somebody else that might be religious, they think, well, those people, uh, maybe they're mighty fine people, but I wonder what's going on really inside them. And so you're always kind of viewed with suspicion. But the gospel is the opposite of that. It's not about spiritual, it's not about uh, religious reformation, it's about tr spiritual transformation. It's what takes place from the inside out. It's what's going on inside us, not what is going on outside of us. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Romans. If you know anything about Romans, we studied Romans many, uh, several years ago. In the, the first 11 chapters, Paul is saying Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. He states his case. And, uh, and then he begins in Romans chapter 12, the application, and he says that I appeal to you to make your body a living sacrifice, presentable to him, holy and acceptable, for this is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to, to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not, not reformation of the outside, but transformation of the inside. That true transformation is not behavioral. It's something that takes place inside of us. It is renewal. 
It's the renewal of one's thinking, their mind. It's as though their whole paradigm has been changed because of something externally that has worked inside a person's life, and now they see all through that perspective. Now, if we can reform ourselves through being a little bit more moral, trying a little bit harder to be committed, to pray a little bit more, to read some self-help book, whether it's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and try our best to do that. If it is about if it's about reformation versus transformation, then the question has to be this: as we come to our text, why is Jesus writhing in agony, as we see in our text? If being a Christian is about cleaning up the outside of the cup or being good, or some kind of performance, as it were, to enter into the presence of God, then why the cross? Why the work of Christ? You see, spiritual transformation is going from darkness into light, is from death to life, it is from bondage to freedom. Religion and morality only restrain your heart. You see, when you're trying to do the right thing, you're trying to keep the law, you're trying to be what you need to be, it doesn't change your heart. Matter of fact, it changes it up. There's no freedom. There's no joy. There's no fruit of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we're trying to reform ourselves. Well, I don't really need to read my Bible this morning because I sinned last night. I need to get my act together and then I can come into the presence of God versus understanding that the whole gospel of Jesus Christ is that He has come to be our substitute. To do for you and to do for me what we just absolutely cannot do for ourselves. And so here's the, the one main thing that I want to say uh, this morning to you. There can be no joyous transformation until you see Jesus Christ as your substitute. Until you understand this reality that your whole fate your whole future, your whole life, and your eternal life depends on one of two men. You are either this morning in Adam. And it was in that garden that Adam was to be obedient and bring life for himself and for all of his posterity. But in the garden, in paradise, he sins. And when he sinned, you need to understand the Bible teaches this. Everybody in here was united to him in his sin. It's called original sin. And he sinned in the garden in paradise. Now we come to what the Bible calls in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said, calls Jesus the second Adam. The man from heaven. Fully God, born of a virgin, fully man, two distinct natures, and one person. And where do we find him? We find him in the garden. You think that is by coincidence? But here's the difference between that garden and this garden and Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience. The word Gethsemane means olive press. That the olives would be crushed so that we might enjoy the oils that come from the olives. 
And so now we find Jesus in the garden, and he's asking, Father, let this cup pass from me. Let this hour pass from me. But his obedience doesn't bring him life as it would have Adam. His obedience is to bring him death by submitting, you see, on our behalf. And because of his death, all of us who are in Christ, our union was with him on that cross, and he sets us free. Now, here's what I want to say, is until you understand that he has substituted for you and not been an example for you, that's just more crushing, you will never know the joy and the delight of transformation. You understand that? Transformation that... That no matter what comes in life, God bring what you will. Our Lord Jesus has submitted. I have submitted in him. Now, there are three things to see about him being our substitute. And the first to see is this. We have got to look at the cost to Christ of being our substitute. And then secondly, we need to see the willingness... His willingness to be our substitute. And then the last thing to see is this. His heart for those who look to him alone as their substitute. And that's a, the last point is really a beautiful point as I study this text to see Jesus' love for his, for his flailing people. So the first thing to see is this. The, the cost for him to be our substitute. I mean, somebody has to pay. And we see this in verse 33 through 35. Notice, if you would, in the text. So he takes Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And then verse 35 says, And going a little farther, he fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. We have an insight into the Lord Jesus, who up to this point, through all that he has been through, he's steady. He's in control. And now here, we see him facing death. And how is he facing death, ladies and gentlemen? He's, he's undone. Uh, the, the Greek word here uh, for sorrow, the better translation would be that he's horrified. He's telling his disciples, I am horrified at what I'm about to experience. And then we hear him saying, Father, if it's possible, let this hour pass from me. If it's possible. You see the humanity of Jesus here? Well, he said, oh, of course he did what he did. He's God. He's like Superman. You've got to understand that Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, had to learn obedience as a man for you. 
We're disciplined in our lives to, to learn and to grow and to be the kind of people we need to be. And so we go and we get educated and we learn from our parents what's right and wrong and so on and so forth. Now, there's a discipline about, quote, being a good citizen, being somebody whose life matters. He had to learn obedience to the nth degree as God his Father called him. A real human being with real human emotions. And what's he doing? He's falling apart. He has, he's falling upon the ground. Now, a lot of commentators said this about him doing this. They said this means that this had to have happened. And the reason this had to have happened because in ancient literature, the heroes never died that way. They faced death like a man, right? In fact... Many of the commentators say, if you think about it, many of the martyrs died much more heroically than Jesus, right? I don't know if you've ever read The Life of the Martyrs. You really ought to do that. It, it, it's very powerful. I think I told you all that I read Fox's, Fox's Book of Martyrs on my honeymoon. And uh, my wife, what are you reading? I'm like, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Well, I was okay, but. But I wanted to read them. You know, I want to read them on my honeymoon because God had blessed me so much with a great wife. And, you know, I wanted to thank God that I can enjoy my honeymoon free from the penalty of death. That I can enjoy Mary Beth, but as much as I enjoy her, I enjoy my freedom that's in Jesus Christ. And it was those saints who, who were faithful, those who are dying right now in Syria, Christians who are dying in Egypt, that hand it down to us. And here they are faithful Dying, hopefully. But here we see Jesus falling apart. Why? Because, you see, he is entering into the no-hope zone. And there, he, he, is, he, is, he is your substitute today, ladies and gentlemen. 2,000 years ago, if you're in Christ... If you're an Adam, you're, you'll just reform yourself to the cows come home and hate every minute of it. But here Jesus Christ, for his people, for whom he died, he is beginning the process in the garden, being separated on our behalf. And he is undone. And he's undone for two reasons. First off, what did it cost him? It cost him... And that he was lonely. Now, can anybody in here relate to loneliness? We all can, can't we? And uh, sometimes there's loneliness because you're responsible for something. Uh, Greg, I was uh, one of our ruling elders. He's a clerk, but he's also uh, head of downtown ministries. And, and then I'm thinking of the, the, the school that's starting. All the responsibilities that Greg has. And y'all need to pray for Greg. And bet, Greg, I bet sometimes you feel lonely. Because it's like, you know what? We've got to come up with lots and lots of money. And guess who they're going to look to? And so the more responsibility you take, the more loneliness you feel. If you don't feel like you're lonely and you're hanging out with your buddies and you're just doing whatever you want to do, then there's no loneliness that's there. You're just hanging out with your friends until you're by yourself. And then you come to that second kind of loneliness. It's a much greater loneliness and you know what really makes us lonely is our sin. 
doesn't it? The fact that we're supposed to be one way and we're not. Sin, sin always cuts us off from God and it cuts us off from one another. How many of you are sitting here today right now, forget being cut off from God because of your sin, but you lied to your parents about this weekend? Or you were saying something about me or John, one of the rulers at the church, or you're talking about one of your best friends and you're taught behind their back. You ever notice how when you go look at that person the next time you kind of don't want to look them in the eye? You know why? Because you've been cut off from their face. Your eyes drop. You that have gone through the painful experience of having an affair. To break that covenant. Or to promise your children that you would do something and you don't do it. More concerned about your own glory and your own uh, people being committed to you than your commitments to other people. And then that little kid's looking at you at six or seven years old and you didn't do what you said you are going to do. You made a promise. And you see, and all of a sudden there's this barrier there's there, right? Isn't that what sin does? It cuts us off and it makes us lonely. It makes us lonely. And some of you are lonely because you have been cut off from the face of God. I spoke with somebody recently who just said, I can't read the Bible right now. And I said, why not? And they said, because of this consistent sin in my life. I feel ashamed. Man, go to the Bible. Go before the Lord. Why? Because you see, we see Jesus Christ for the first time not being answered by his Father. Right? He's always asking things of the Father, usually for us. Right? Father, heal them. Father, bless this food as I divide this bread. Uh, Father, uh, cast this demon out of this person. He's always been given over and asking the Father as a mediator on our behalf. But now he's here and he's asking on his behalf. And there is no answer. You know why? Because of the second thing. That he understands as the second Adam for you, ladies and gentlemen, he must drink the cup. He says, let this cup pass from me. So what's the cup got to do with it? Well, you see, he knew the Bible. You know why he knew the Bible? Because he was God? No, because he studied while he was a man. He studied the Word, and as he's studying the Word, he, uh, he comes to these passages uh, that speak of the cup of judgment. He knew Psalm 75, verse 8, that says... In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. You see that? The wickedness of this world. And guess who fits in there? You do. And I do. Don't you understand that about yourself? You think moral reformation is going to pay for the sins that you've committed toward one another? And why is it you're more bothered by other people's sins against you rather than your sins against other people? You see, the Bible teaches that somebody is going to drink that cup. Let me give you an example of this. Many of y'all know that my oldest brother years ago took his life. As a matter of fact, it was my first month in the ministry. 
Very difficult. And, and my oldest brother, and he and I were close, okay? We were close. And, uh, but you, he, he, uh, he chose to live a life of commitment to self. And it continued to destroy him and destroy everybody around him, you see. And, uh, but he never admitted that he had a problem. Never. I don't have a problem. Y'all have a problem. I'm just doing my thing. Right? But then he took his life, and then my father told me what he said about two days before he took his life. My father was trying to help him, and he said, Jimmy, you just need to get your act together. You get your act together, and we'll all be fine. Just get your act together. Anybody want to get their act together this morning? Moral Reformation. He never, he never said ever that he needed to get his act together. He said, I'm my own act. But Dad said, he said, get my act together. I am vile. How can a vile man get his act together? You see, he understood the cup. He came to the reality that my life has been given to self and not given to God. And you know what he did? He chose to drink the cup. When just two months earlier I shared with him the woman at the well. And Jesus offered her, vile woman, married five times, living with a guy, wanting to talk religion with Jesus. And Jesus says, well, go get your husband. We'll talk about it. And she said, I don't have a husband. He said, right, you've had five. And the man you're living with right now is not your husband. And you know what he does? In all her brokenness and all her vileness, he says, come to me for water. And I'll clean you up. And I'll give you life. It's not the righteous that I've called. So he drinks the cup. Do you see him Devastated? Why? Because, see, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ today, and either you're going to drink the cup or he's going to drink the cup. And I don't care what your sin is. I don't care what you've done. You come to him and he'll drink it all. But brothers and sisters, if he drank the cup for you, shall you make other people drink your cup? Through your hard-heartedness and bitterness because you know what? You've never been transformed because you've never understood that he has done this for you. And so he did this, but you've got to do this. And so you're always mad because you've got to meet him halfway. And so you're mad at everybody else. You understand that? That's the cost. But notice, this is amazing. The second thing, and I'll be short on my last two points, but the second thing is this. His willingness... To be our substitute. You know what? We're always saying not. You know, we say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. Lord, uh, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. Do y'all know how much we spend most of our lives saying, my will be done. My will be done. And yet, here Jesus is. And notice, in verse 36, he says, Abba, which means daddy, literally in the Aramaic. Father, all things are possible for you. 
Remove his cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, it is here that we see Jesus' full humanity. He's asking. Uh, maybe there's another way to do this. Actually, there's a, there's a, in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah uh, 47. I can't remember exactly where it was. I meant to write it down. I didn't. But there seems to be in Isaiah that maybe there's an out clause. But you see, he knows that there is no other way. I guess maybe at that point he could have said, you know, I tell you what, Peter, Peter and uh, James and John, they're asleep. The other guys, I'm sure they're asleep. Let's just be done with this. And let's just go ahead and give everybody what they deserve. And let me ask you, you know what you deserve this morning? Because you don't love God like you should. Don't love me, I don't love you. We don't love each other like you should. What we deserve uh, is is for him to go, you know what, i tell you what, y'all drink the cup. But he doesn't. And here's what's amazing. Is notice what he says. He says, not my will, your will be done. And you know, apparently he does it three times. After he does that, the first time, we had the first instance where he comes back to Peter, Peter, James, and John, and guess what they're doing? They're not watching, they're asleep. They're asleep. He's in agony. In fact, he's a stone's throw away. They could probably have heard him in agony. And they come in and sleep. Kind of seeming to be indifferent. I mean, his best friends, I mean, they're at the Mount of Transfiguration. I'll tell you what, my wife experienced this uh, yesterday as uh, uh, somebody decided to take her cell phone. And boy, that's one little app you get, get. on here where it says, find your phone? Well, we found the phone. And we probably figured we knew who took the phone. And so we go, and sure enough, it was uh, somebody that she knew, that we knew, that took the phone. And uh, so uh, the mother apologizes, but the girl didn't. She didn't apologize. Uh, but Mary Beth forgave her, but let me tell you what Mary Beth couldn't do. Let me tell you what he couldn't do. He could not atone for her. Now, how would you feel if somebody stole your stuff and rather than going, hey, I'm so sorry, like, I don't care. He's alone. And you know why he's alone? Because most of the time in our lives we're saying, I don't really care. <laughs> I don't care about the poor. I don't care about the rich. I don't care about... I, you know, my will be done. But here he is. He's saying, not my will, your will be done. And guess what he gets for that? Pain, suffering, and death. Bearing the sins of his people. Now, now let me just give one application here before I come to the last point. Hey, I know a lot of you are in agony. Some of you, life's not turning out. You've been asking God, God, would you please take this from me? Yeah, Apostle Paul did that, didn't he? Then he asked the Lord three times, Lord, please remove this from me. Please remove If you remove this thorn in my flesh, my life will be better. And the Lord said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. 
You know, the last thing we want to do is suffer, right? What we want is, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to ask Jesus for things, and then everything's going to turn out right for me. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, God might not be answering your prayer because he wants you to suffer for the sake of other people. You understand that? But we have this model in Jesus. Jeffrey Thomas tells the story of... uh, Corey Ten Boom and Elizabeth Elliot. Now, maybe y'all not, don't know much about these ladies. Elizabeth Elliot, uh, husband, was killed by the uh, Aka Indians in, in uh, South America. And she went back to, to the, those Indians that actually uh, killed her husband. And she and some others led them all to Christ. There's a Christian village there now. Her second husband died of cancer. And, uh, and she's talking to Corey Ten Boom. If you know anything about Corey Ten Boom, Corey Ten Boom suffered. Uh, under the Nazis, right? She was in prison. Her sister Betsy died. And her father died. And other members of the family died because, you know why? Because they were hiding Jews. They were actually bearing the cost for being Christians. And so they had the pleasure of being together on a train trip. And uh, they were talking about God's providence. And as it came up, Corey Tim Boone picked up a piece of uh, embroidery work. And she was only showing the back of it to Elizabeth Elliot. And when she was showing her the back of this, she, she quoted this that was not on the stitch. But she said, she apparently memorized it. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I do not choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oftentimes he weaveth sorrow and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. And then she flips it over. And what she was embroidering says, Yet not what I will, but what you will. Hey, let me ask you, is that transformation or reformation? That's transformation. Hey, Lord, you do with me what you want to. And I will take whatever you bring. Because my Savior did. My substitute did. Maybe you're in agony right now. I don't know. But you know what? The promise is this. If he willingly submitted for you, brothers and sisters, let us willingly submit to what his will is for our lives. And then the last thing is the cost and the willingness. But I I have to get this in. The heart for those who look to him as their only substitute. His heart for those who look to him. Notice what he says. He comes back, and what does he see? He sees them sleeping. But notice what he says in verse 38, in the midst of his pain. And here they are, sleeping, and he says, The spirit, small ass, not Holy Spirit, but the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, he loved them, and they failed. In fact, you know why he took them there? I want to tell you why he took them up there. Those three guys, they were at the Mount of Transfiguration. They're going to be pillars of the, the church. And guess what they had to learn? They were utter failures. These three guys, they had all the privileges that the other disciples didn't, and they still fall asleep, and they still run away. And Jesus is loving them the whole way. Isn't that an encouraging thing to you? And he says this. He sympathizes with their infirmities. And he says, I know the Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's the Savior you can come to.
You see, guys, Jesus was not abandoned by his father so that he would abandon you. He's for you. And until you understand that, you'll never be free. Christ for me. Died with him 2,000 years ago. Resurrected, and I was united to him in his resurrection. And I'm free. Ladies and gentlemen, is that transformation? Absolutely. Come what may. Thy will be done. On earth, even as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, would you convert people this morning to see the beauty and the love of Jesus Christ and that they would take themselves outside of Adam. And if your Holy Spirit is leading them this morning to confess their sin, be born again this morning, and come to Jesus, who's their substitute, and surrender everything to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's help with communion. Our, uh, John, our associate pastor, some of y'all don't know Justin. Justin's our campus minister with the RUF. Aren't you here today, Justin? Is he helping today? Oh, there he is.